0: And the rest of us will be in um, Ephesians chapter 1. Now, I'm not going to have slides today because I rewrote the sermon. So most of these notes are not going to be apply, apply either. Uh, but the scripture passage is the same as uh, just a presentation of this. So if you don't have your scripture, because we usually have it up here, you might want to grab just one of the bulletins. Otherwise, just turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Some of you know uh, the joy of being a grandparent, right? In fact, um, you know, if I were to know how much fun it was to be a grandparent, I would have skipped having the kids and just gone straight to having grandkids. Um, so Thursday of this week, uh, no, Tuesday, I was on uh, grandpa duty just for a few minutes. Uh, my daughter, Rachel, she's working at the B&B here in town, and, and uh, I needed to pick up Timothy because she wasn't going to get there in time. So I picked up Timothy, our five-year-old, or their five-year-old, and uh, picked him up and Brought him to the place, and he's, we got out of the car, and he sees the BMV up there, and he's just learning how to read, of course. And he says, oh, BMV. Said, Good job. He recognized the letters. And I said, what does that stand for? Bureau of Motor Vehicles. And then he asked me, what does bureau mean? All right. So you've got about 30, 45 seconds between the car To walk him in where he sees his mom, he's going to forget all about your conversation. How do you explain to a five-year-old in 45 seconds what bureau means, right? I started to think, okay, well, it's a government age. Okay, he doesn't know what government or agency means, so we just changed the subject. Now, the reason I'm mentioning that is because um, I kind of feel like that today as we look at this last part of Ephesians 1. Not that you're five-year-olds. You guys are an incredibly intelligent group of people some of the most intelligent I know. But just because we're we're dealing with things and concepts that we haven't experienced yet, and so we hear the word, but we may not understand fully what they mean. And that's for all of us. And yet they're so important that God wants to give us some understanding of this. So let's pray and ask God to show us what goes, goes beyond my ability to explain it may be beyond our ability to understand in our own selves. We have the Holy Spirit within us. So let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you please? Would you guide my words? There's so many things I want to say, so many things I could say. Um, but would you let my words be directed by you? And then would you help us as we think about your plan for all things? And we see this big picture. Holy Spirit, would you help us apply that to our own lives? We're at different stages here. Some of us are in high school or college. Some of us are in our 80s or 90s. Would you help us, God, in a way that I could never do to apply this to where we need it in our lives, please? Thank you, Father. Amen. All right. Like I said, I'm not going to follow the notes in here, except for the last part, because um, as I was going through this, I just decided it would be better to, instead of me trying to rearrange it, just follow the flow of Paul's thoughts, which is not as easy as it sounds sometimes, right? Uh, Because remember how last week we said verses 3 through 14 were all one sentence in the Greek language? Yeah, well, he does it again. The rest of the chapter, verses 15 through 23, are all one sentence in the Greek New Testament. And uh, so I think it's just because he gets so enthused and wrapped up in this. He, he just can't stop. He just piles on clauses and, and, you know, so many things. So let's unpack this a little bit. And you have it here, a somewhat literal translation in your notes. I'm going to be basing it on this. And Matthew read this, so we're just going to go straight into this. Now, first 14 verses. He talked about God's big plan, and and we looked at that last week. His ultimate goal is to unite and perfect all things in Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ and under Jesus Christ. That is his big goal. You see it summarized there in verse 10. And then he talks about how you also were included in this. So you have a, a piece of this. And that's one thing we should understand right at the beginning. God has a plan, and you are not only a part of that, You are a key part of that. And we'll explain why here in a few minutes. And he says, he begins this part. Therefore, once I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the believers, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, mentioning you in my prayers. Now, let's stop here for a second. What usually provokes our prayers? Usually it's a problem, right? God, I need you to solve something. (laughs) That's not wrong. But there is a deeper type of prayer Paul models here. This is a prayer hearing what God is doing in someone's life or maybe in my own life and asking God to solidify that, make it grow stronger. And it says, okay, that's what I want to do because I've heard that you have a part in God's plan. You are true believers. And how does he explain what a true believer is? Hearing about two things, your faith in the Lord Jesus or your trust in the Lord Jesus and the love you have for all the believers. Well, he could have said so many things, right? Therefore, hearing about all your good works, hearing about all the things you're doing, all your religious activities, hearing about all the ways you're, you're standing up for the truth, and hearing about all the great things you're teaching, doesn't do that, though. Because the marks of a believer are these two things. A trust in Jesus Christ rather than ourselves for the ultimate issues of our life. And secondly, a love for each other the outward expression of that. Isn't Jesus the one who said, the world will know your mind? How? By the love you show each other. Thus, very much on Paul's mind He says, I want you to understand it. And that, that's a word of encouragement, by the way, because we don't get it right most of the time. We don't do all the things we should. But to the degree that we have a, tr- a genuine trust in Jesus, and to d- any degree we, we desire to love each other and show to give to the good of their ultimate need, that's a sign that the Holy Spirit is within us as a down payment, as a verse described before this. All right, so he says, because I've heard this for you, let's just personalize this. I don't think it's, this is culturally bound at all so we can apply it to us. I haven't stopped praying for you. That's what Paul says. I keep mentioning you in my prayers. The idea is a continuing thing. And, and look how he prays then. I am praying, right, first thing, I am praying in order that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation to fully know him. First thing he prays about for us is that God would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Revelation means that it has to be revealed to us by God. That's the idea behind that word. And what is the point of that? So that you would fully know him. Uh, the word there is just to know in the Greek line gnosis. and then there's this uh, preposition that intensifies the epi to fully know him is the idea oh, what a beautiful thought and what a what a deep prayer that we would fully know God. He's saying that our deepest need right off the bat here is to know God more to know him more now we already know him, but there we don't really know him, do we? I was writing this sermon at Maine in Madison, so this that's why this particular a person or people popped in my mind, but, you know, I, I know the women who who run Maine and Madison. Um, I, I spend usually two mornings a week in there writing or do some other work, um, and so I, I know them. I know them by name. Uh, there's Ashley, and there's Jennifer, and there might be one other. Those are the two I know. If I saw them on the street, we might exchange pleasantries. If someone asked me, hey, do you know the, the women who run Maine and Madison? I said, yeah, I know But Imagine a different situation where I was asked by someone I just met and they heard my last name. Oh, yeah, Judson. Do you know Amy Judson who, who teaches over here at Needham? Yeah, I know her a bit. Now, I'm using the same word to know, but in quite different ways, right? The, the way I know Amy after 37 years of living with her and sharing life with her, it, it's almost not the same concept as knowing these other women just by name. In the same way, we know God. But there is a sense we don't know him, or not like we should. So he's praying that that's the first thing I want to happen in your life. And then the second thing, he says, I want the eyes of your heart to be opened, or enlightened is literally the Greek word there. I want the eyes of your heart to be opened. Now, wait a second. All right, let's think through this. Let's style out let these words by eyes of our heart. You know, it's been a while since I had any classes in biology or anatomy, but I'm pretty sure we don't have eyes on our heart. So what's the after here? Well, obviously, it's a metaphor. But it helps to remember that in Paul's time in the ancient world, uh, the heart was not the center of emotions like it is for us. You know, I love you with my whole heart. All right, that would make no sense to them. The center of emotions, to the degree that the body has a center of emotions, is more in the gut, kidney, liver, intestines. And that actually makes kind of sense, right? When you feel an emotion really strongly, where do you feel it? Do you feel it up here or is more here, right? And and so that idea, this in biblical terminology, it's it's the the gut, the midsection, the center of emotions, and that's why I've decided to gain a few pounds around my middle since I was uh, some years younger. I, w- I wanted more expansion to feel things more deeply for you all, um, totally for you. Now, what does he mean then when he says the eyes of a heart? Well, the heart was considered the center of Thoughts or values or or choices, okay. As Jesus said, guard your heart. Or Proverbs says, guard your heart, for out of it flows the issues of life. So this is where you're where you're thinking about things. It's not primarily intellectual knowledge, but where you're thinking and valuing and interpreting things. He says, I want your heart. I want it to be as if, imagine if you had eyes there. I want them to be full of light, so that you understand something that unless they're you're given this light. You don't understand. You ever been in a hotel room, and you know maybe it's got a window that's one full side, one full wall, you know there, um, but it's got this really heavy curtain. So you go to bed that night, pull the curtain completely shut, and, and you know it's really thick. It covers the whole thing, and you wake up in the morning. Even though the sun's already up, it's still pretty dark in that room, and so you're, you're stumbling around. You're in a new place. You're, you're stubbing your toe. And then finally you get to the window and you open the blind and all the light comes in at once and your wife yells at you from the bed, shut that blind. Um, that's the idea. Of You're in this place of reality of your own. There are things here you're going you're gonna to run into unless God opens your eyes, enlightens your eyes, brings light to them. All right. So he's saying, not that our brains need more information, but our hearts need to have this light brought in so we can see three things. Three things that are so crucial to understanding our purpose, and our our meaning in life. What are they? Well, first, I want you to understand the hope of your calling. What is the hope of your calling? Now, again, those sound like religious words that we're just going to skip over, but let's not. Remember, in biblical terminology, hope doesn't mean this vague hope, wish that may or may not come true in the future. That's what it usually means in English. But in the Bible sense, hope means something that's going to happen in the future that's really good and it can change my life right now. Something like getting married or having a child. And, and so that's the idea. What is calling then? Well, calling just means that we have been chosen for a particular purpose or plan. And that's part of what we tried to get out last week, right? We are saved from the punishment of our sin. We're also saved toward something, not just from. And that's what we're going to come back to. So I want you to understand the hope of your calling. Do you know that you have a calling? If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have placed your trust in him, there is a calling that is a great hope. And most of us don't have a good idea what that is. That's why he says, I want you to pray about this. And here's the second thing the hope of recalling, calling and the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Now, what does that mean? It means this I want you to understand how glorious and rich God considers you as his inheritance. Now, that, that word, oh, wait, I'm God's inheritance? Yeah. Uh, It's a very biblical concept. The Old Testament talks about the people of God are God's inheritance. There is a glory. There is a a joy. There is a richness that when God looks at you and I and he sees us in our eternal role, connected with him and like him and partnering with him, it's, it's a source of great joy and richness and glory to God. Now, we don't see that, right? We see ourselves and we see all of our failings. We see all the ways we don't measure up in the world's eyes, and we think in God's eyes as well. But we have to remember that God is seeing things in terms of his completion. That's why he calls us saints, holy ones, because that's what he's making us. I love Hebrews chapter 12. It was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross. What joy? Well, it wasn't the cross itself. It wasn't to get more power or renown. He was the son of God. He was equal with God. He had, there was nothing to gain there. The joy was your heart and my heart in connection with him. For the joy of this, Christ endured the cross. And we need help to understand that. You are not just an object of God's pity. We are that in one sense, but much, much more. And that's what we need to see. Third thing. The incomparable greatness of his power towards us who believe. Now, wait. What, what do you mean his power for us who believe? What do we need power for? Well, we don't. It's God's doing the work here. right? But... Because we're being transformed from our present weak state, in our present weak body, in our present sinful condition, into being beings of eternal power and holiness and wisdom and love, I mean, that's a big transformation, right? It takes a lot of power. I mean, that's what transformation takes. If I had enough skill and power, I could go down and take a, a down tree and I could make a table out of it, right? If I had enough power and wisdom, I could take some sand, some silica, and uh, I could make glass out of it make windows or or phone screens, right? So there's a transformation of us that has to take place. And he's saying, I want you to understand, it looks like this is a big task, and it is, to change us to being this. But God has that kind of power. He is in the process of transforming us towards his purpose and goal and to our, our perfection, really. Now, Pastor Nate, so we're going to preach next week on chapter 2. I'm going to steal his thunder before we go on to the next verse here a little bit. In chapter 2, verse 4, he, he brings it down more personally. He says, by nature, you were dead in your sins, verse 1, and you were objects of wrath. In other words, you were objects deserving of God's wrath, and you were dead in your sins. But God, out of his love for you, has made you alive with Christ. And then it goes down to verse 10 of, of chapter 2. And God has made you his workmanship. And that word is a a word describing the process of making something beautiful by hand, as it were. So it's not just making a a jug to carry water. It's to make something beautiful, like a craftsman would do. It's a craftsman's type word. And uh, we get the word poem from that, because a poem are words crafted together skillfully and beautifully for a purpose. Let me let me give you an example of this. Two years ago, Amy and I went to the Penrod Arts Festival in Indianapolis. If you've never gone, it's amazing. And uh, they had music, they had ballet, but they also had all these artists, these craftsmen in different tents. And there were probably over 100 different tents. And some were working, of course, with photography and some with with a painting and and some with ceramics. And uh, I knew I wanted to buy one thing. And out of all the things I looked at, this one caught my eye. And it it was a beautiful piece of wood and a candle holder. And I thought, oh, it's beautiful. It almost symbolizes the Trinity here. You know, I could maybe use this for my devotions. Um, But more than that, I just just love the beauty of it. And I asked the woman who who was manning the booth, she was also the artist, Says, so, okay, so how'd you make this? And uh, what's it made out of? She says, well, it's made out of apple wood. I went down to Apple Works. Oh, I know where that is. I've been there plenty of times. And she said, I went there uh, during the off season and asked if I could go through their brush pile. In other words, the pile of branches and things that have fallen and been collected that are going to be burned. And I said, sure. And I found a piece of wood that I really liked and I kind of envisioned what it could be and I took it home, and I shaped it, and I polished it, and I stained it, and I put those holes for the candle, and and that's what she did. She took a piece of wood that was destined for the burn pile, and through the power and wisdom that she had, made it into something that at least some of us, like myself, find beautiful and functional. Now, that's what an artist does. God took us, destined for the burn pile, as it were, destined for destruction, and he has made us his own workmanship. So this is what God is doing, and this is why he says, I, I want you to understand, and I want you to understand the power of that. And then he goes on, and this is uh, where we're going to finish the chapter here. So well, how much power does, is God using in this? Well, here, here he tells us. It's the same power he worked using mighty strength when he raised Christ from the dead. All right, well, that should do it, right? (laughs) Think about the transformation. Jesus' body was cold, lifeless as a stone. It could do nothing. And God used his power to transform that into into the body and person of the risen and resurrected Jesus Christ, the Lord of heaven and earth. And that's the same power that he's using in your life. To transform you from something worthy of the brush pile into something beautiful and functional in his eyes. So that's the power that he has for you. And I want, he says, I want you to understand that. And then he goes on. And seated him at the right hand, at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority and powers and lordships and every title that can be named not only in this life, but in the one to come, and subjected all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things, period. Right? I mean, if I was writing that, that's where the period would go. <laughs> but Paul doesn't put a period there. He puts a clause. It's a clause of, well, technically it's a dative clause. It means for the benefit of, or, or towards someone else. So he says, God subjected all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church or for the church. Your translations may differ, but it's the same idea. If I say, okay, I'm going to go buy a Christmas present for Amy, so I'm buying it for her, but then when the time comes, I give it to her. It's the same idea. It just means that I'm doing something for the benefit of somebody else. No way. At least part of the reason God is doing this then is for us, the church. And by he doesn't mean Franklin Community Church, he means all those everywhere, the universal church of God, who are truly his followers. What does that mean? How can God do all this for our benefit? Well, I think the next phrase explains this, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now, God's all-powerful. He can do things any way he wants to. He's not limited by any power or any law, only only by who he is, basically. God could have ruled all things perfectly and directly under the authority of Jesus Christ without involving any of us, but he didn't. Instead, what God has chosen to do, the way I understand this, and I've been studying this for years, and I think this is the way most New Testament scholars understand this, is this. The way that God exercises his rule and authority over all things in all creation, the way he will, is by filling the members of his body, the church, with all of the wisdom and beauty and love and power and justice of Jesus Christ himself. We are filled with Christ, and therefore we are restored to our original role of being God's image within the physical creation, the new creation in this case. That's how God is doing all things. So we see that he's doing it for the benefit of the church because it allows us to be partners in connection with him. It allows us to have this dignity of not just being his subjects and servants, those who have to follow whatever he says, but being full partners with him as he perfects and redeems and unites all things. We are the way he does that. I was trying to think of an analogy, and this one is not perfect, but maybe just a way. Think of a, all right, you're reading a sci-fi novel, all right? It's sci-fi novel set maybe 100, 150 years in the future when they've perfected, you know, advanced space travel and and, you know, cyber sleep or, Space sleep, whatever you want to call it, you know, where you just kind of, be, because the vision I'm talking about is going to take many years. Imagine 100, 150 years from now, we see some anomaly in the, in the uh, galaxy we hadn't noticed before, something strange. And so we, we send out a ship and the, we put the astronauts, the men and women there into to, to sleep until they, they come to that place. And, and many years later, they, they come and they find this anal, anomaly which doesn't make any sense according to our instruments, is actually a place where everything is just as it should be. Everything is perfect and right, and evil is non-existent. Everything is exactly the way we always wanted it to be. And it's overseen and ruled and guided by, in this perfection, a group of immaterial spirits called Eldar, I'm just I'm stealing that from C.S. Lewis if you read his space trilogy books. All right. So they are the ones who have perfected this, and they are the ones that have all this wisdom and power and love and authority and have made everything just the way it should be. Now, these same group of astronauts recognize that their own planet uh, is on the verge of self-destruction because humanity is filled with war and greed and violence and they want to bring back this perfection, but they can't take one of these spiritual beings with them. They're embedded in it like a, like a fish in water. What can they do? They can become so full of the wisdom and power and insight and skill of those spiritual beings, the Eldar, that they themselves can then travel back and filled with that, become the way that that knowledge and love and wisdom is dispersed into this world. I think that's not a bad analogy to what God is doing. I love this idea, then. All right, last part. This is what God is doing. No wonder we need help to understand it. How do we respond? How do we respond? What am I going to do this week different than I did last week? Because maybe I got a glimpse... The God's made me for more than just pleasures and treasures in this world. I have a great, high, eternal purpose. Well, I I would say, based upon Paul's writing here, three things. First, seek to pray and know him more. Seek to pray and know him more. Going back to that first part, he's got all this in mind, and so because of this, he's praying that first we'd understand this God more. What would it take for you? I'm talking practical steps. To know God more. We don't know him as we should. There's eternal blessings to knowing him, but there are many, many obstacles, right? I can't answer that for you, but I want to give you an illustration just from my own life of what that looks like. As I was working through this this week, this came to me, and I I told Amy yesterday, okay, or Friday, I'm going to make this change. And that change is, I'm disallowing myself all Internet activity or or access from 9 p.m. to 9 a.m. In fact, I have a program on my computers that shuts it off on every device I own from 9 p.m. to 9 a.m. Now, why? Well, uh, especially after Joe's death, i kind of fallen into these bad habits of, you know, just kind of coping, don't have as much energy and focus as I used to. So kind of fell into this bad habit. Amy would go to bed at like 9 or 9.30 because she gets up at 5. Um, and so she goes back at 9, 9.30, and, and it's, I would spend the time just, you know, often wasting time on the Internet, looking at things that don't make any difference eternally, that don't help me. Uh, they're only mildly interesting, but, you know, just get sucked in on that. And uh, I, was finding, I, I was spending that consistently doing that several times a week. And that used to be the time more than any other, where I would use that time to think and pray and meditate, listen to some spiritual music, and draw closer to God. So I made this commitment. All right, I can't make myself grow closer to God, but I can make a commitment that I believe out of that will we'll work towards that goal. Now, you're not like me, um, but you're going to have your own things. What schedule change? What, what other thing could you do to know God more? And then related to that, here's the second thing, to understand his calling for you and your destiny more, because those, those are going to be related, right? His, his plan and purpose flow out of his nature of love. So the second thing is to do whatever we can, set your mind to prayer on your destiny. As he puts it here, your future glory, your hope, God's great pleasure in your transformation and God's power to do all this as we as we talked about and then here's the last part then seek to pray know him more set your mind and your prayers on your destiny and then lastly reinterpret the meaning of your present reality based upon these things reinterpret the meaning of your reality now what does that mean give you a humorous story to start um, I, I've heard some years ago the state of Montana was offered a bounty of several thousand dollars for every wolf that you could bring in, dead or alive. And uh, so these two hunters decided they were going to make some money here. So they went out hiking, trying to find some wolves, and uh, they hiked all day, didn't find one single wolf. Laid out for the night, fire's still going, but you know they dripped off to sleep. And then one of them wakes up, just as the fire is about to go, He's got a little bit of light there, and he realizes they're surrounded by 12 wolves. And uh, he he quickly leans over to his buddy, wakes him, and says, you yeah, know, wake up, wake up, we're in trouble. And his friend wakes up, surveys the situation, says, No, we're not in trouble, we're about to be rich. <laughs> yeah. Two people seeing the same reality but interpreting it differently. We we do that, right? Why do people respond differently to the same situations? Because they're interpreting the meaning of those situations differently. Let's put this more in our own life here. You're in school or you're at work and there's someone who really annoys you or even insults you. Or maybe it's uh, your neighbor or even someone in your family. Now, I realize we're all good Christians in this room so we never get annoyed or frustrated with somebody else, right? So just as a thought experiment, though, imagine this. You've got someone in your life that's causing you pain. It might be little, it might be very deep. Now, what is the meaning of that? That's the reality, but what's the meaning of that? You get to choose, in a sense. If the purpose of your life is simply to enjoy all these relationships and be, have a good reputation, then anything like that, any insult, any gossip supporter about you, it's, it's a complete negative, right? But at the meaning of your life, the purpose of your eternal life is to go close to God to become like God, Jesus Christ, and through that connection and likeness, to share and partnering and reigning over the eventual new creation. Well, you know what? That still hurts. But now I begin to see that I don't have to respond to it as only a hurt, because I can also believe that God will use this for my ultimate good. Isn't that what he says? Romans 8, 28 and 29. And we know that God works all things for the good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. There's those words again called, purpose. That's the promise of God. That's the promise of God. Well, I don't know what that means for you, but I'm going to guess that there's probably some painful reality in your life. It might be big, it might be small. But I encourage you this week to put your mind more on God to deliberately do things, not just have a good intention, but do things that will actually help you do that. And then out of that, ask him to help you reinterpret those situations. Um, I recently read a story that will serve as a good reminder for us both as we prepare to part ways. Story is about a group of climbers who set out to scale a large mountain in Europe. And the view boasted a, you know, kind of a breathtaking peak of snow-capped rocks. And on clear days, that point reigned as kind of like king on the horizon. Its white tip jutted into the blue sky, inviting admiration, inviting inspiration. And on days like this, the hikers made their, their most progress. The peak stood over them like a compelling goal, and their eyes were upward, and the walk was brisk, and the co- cooperation unselfish. Though many, they climbed as one, all looking to the same summit. Yet on some days, the peak on the mountain was hidden from view. The cloud covering would eclipse the crisp blueness with a drab, gray ceiling, block the vision of the mountaintop. And on these days, this person writes, The climb became arduous. Eyes were downward, thoughts inward. The goal was forgotten. Temper were short, and weariness was an uninvited companion. Complaints stung like thorns on the trail. It was the same reality. They were climbing towards this. But only when they were able to see that, when they beheld that, did it make a difference in how they were going. We come back to this idea, then, that we need to behold God, to look at him intently. And when we do, when we see him, when we see his purpose for us, and the power he has to transform us into what we are now, to someone as an equal partner with Jesus Christ, in fact, he says, he is not ashamed to call us his brethren. Wow. When we see that, when we behold him and his plan, it makes all the difference.